A couple of years ago, my friend Karen Ladd recommended that I begin following Jan Palmer on Instagram. She said, I think you'll really appreciate who she is and the way she shares. And she was right. On Jan's website, she says, I believe in kindness over coolness, laughter as therapy, doing whatever it is you do with heart and taking the time to see the people and the world around you. Well, this is perfect place to start because I was just looking at some of your um, bios again and noticed on your, at least on your Twitter bio that it said- I have a Twitter bio? I know. I never get on Twitter anymore. I just was looking up your various bios and uh, I loved that it said, I'm in the love business. Oh, (laughs) I don't know if it, if you've used that elsewhere, but you're a photographer, a teacher, a writer, a podcaster, a friend, a mother, you know, all of these um, different ways that you make space for people and encourage and inspire. But mm-hmm. ultimately, the that you phrased it that way. So I was like, that's so true. She's in the love business. Yeah, that is a good way to sum it up. That must have been one late night, however many years ago that I came up with that. Who knows? But I'm like, yeah, that works. I was... Because, you know, in every medium that I do, I think of that Thomas Merton quote, and it goes something like, if we really understood what each other were, we would just fall down and worship. We just wouldn't do anything else. We would just fall down and just praise each other all the time. And I do find that that's my instinct, just as a human being of just like, I want to go around and I want to notice and, and tell people what I see. And, and especially those people who seem to like fade into the background and maybe don't get noticed. And I realized growing up how strange that was to go about in the world in that way. And how, and I've realized also, especially, um, I don't really date, but anytime I do try to date in my almost at almost 40, how strange that is. And <laughs> oh my gosh. We could do a whole podcast episode on that. I know. What's great about having a camera in your hand is all of a sudden you have permission to just praise and love and be in Mm. the business of look at you. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that essence of self that we all carry and that kind of also shared soul. When you look back on your childhood, what were the teachers in your childhood that helped you to see this way? Um, do you mean physical human teachers or experience, experiential teachers? I mean, both. And <laughs> <laughs> what taught you? What or who? Yeah. Um, I grew up one of 10 kids. Wow. I missed that in your bias. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, like I live in Utah and that doesn't really surprise people around Utah because that's true. It's not that uncommon. Right. But in my neighborhood in Boise, Idaho, where I grew up, we were just that house that was crazy and loud and chaotic and never clean. And there was a mountain of laundry always and a mountain of like unopened mail always. And my brother, I had one, I had seven brothers and two sisters. And one of my brother had 20 at one time, 27 pets. And it's, yeah. And it's not like we had a large house. We didn't have very much money. Like we were 
you don't know this as a kid because you're just living, you know, but like we were like dirty and kind of sketchy. And I think our other neighbor neighbors were kind of weirded out by us. But, <laughs> but, and, and as every family, because every family dynamic is unique and strange and meant to teach us, like we had our fair amount of dysfunction, you know, but we also had um, so much humor so much just that um, I call it kind of this bottom of the barrel thinking because everything was going wrong. There was always a crisis. It was always chaos, mm. but because everyone sort of leveled out at all times, because there's 10 of us and there's never enough for anyone, it created this dynamic of surrender of, well, laugh or you'll cry. And mm. like, the only thing we can do is love. That's right. what it felt like. So we, we're very affectionate and very like verbally affectionate and very, um, <laughs> I remember being embarrassed and frustrated, but truly it sort of felt like love was the only thing that, that we were good at. It was the thing that was free, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that we could offer. Right. So I think that was one of my biggest teachers for sure. I think one of my other teachers, I guess it's along the same lines is, my dad is, you'll hear my kids in the background. I hope that's okay. They mind. You know, it's, it's always tricky to talk about family members because you want to be mm. respectful within their boundaries, but he is an unusual man and had really difficult time with social skills and really difficult time with certain, like a history with some strong confrontations with mental health. And so he, um, he really didn't talk to anyone hardly outside of our family and mm -hmm. was always, always felt so out of place everywhere that he was. And this as a daughter and, you know, as sons, it created all of these sorts of weird problems in our home, but it also, you know, the one thing he would just write us and write us about is, is kindness is mm -hmm. reaching out to the person who doesn't feel like they fit in because he felt so much that he was the always, always that outsider. Yeah. And so that was just really ingrained that like our main job in any room, in any event was to open our arms yes. to, to, and especially to the people who didn't feel that they were embraced. Mm. Yeah. That is the, the gift of our personal sorrows, right, is we realize we we develop such compassion in that particular area that, you know, yeah. I, I remember when my oldest uh, started high school and I was talking to him about being kind to one of his teachers that he said everyone was hard on, this female English teacher. And for some reason, just even talking to him about trying to share with him how she might feel and how he could make a big difference in her day simply by being kind and polite. And I'm, I'm like weeping at, <laughs> and this 14 year old boy is probably like, why is this making you cry? <laughs> Talking about my teacher whom you've never met, but you know, I had such a hard time in high school that it's just anybody mm -hmm. teacher or student in high school feeling on the outside. That's my, that's a spot for me. That's a spot. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Me too. When you think, I, one of my favorite words, which I did not make but up, but I have 
overused in the last couple of years is the word aliveness. I just mm. love that word floating around out there. It's really speaks to um, my experience the last few years uh, of feeling life in within me and around me in a new way. So I'm curious when you hear that word, what does that mean to you? If anything, does what comes up for you? So much. Um, the first thing that flashed across my mind was aliveness comes from an embodied connection, from a presence inside of ourselves. Like we're not alive if we're living just outside of our body, whatever ability that body might have, right? So that's right. the first thought. And the second thought is a willingness to not throw anything out that you encounter in body presence or connection to body, you know, like I think of emotions and um, I like to almost like the law of conservation of energy, everything that we feel, it has this energetic purpose, right? Like the entire spectrum from joy to despair. And that if we are willing to greet and embrace whatever emotion we're encountering, mm -hmm. instead of run away from it or numb out from it, by going into the mystery of that, we will discover depths of aliveness that we didn't know were possible to us. But I think that we so often discount so many of those um, particularly negative or boring emotions yeah. on the spectrum. Like, I don't want to feel bored. I don't want to feel jealous. I don't want to feel this or that. And instead say like, oh no, to be fully alive, I'm going to be curious about this thing that I'm feeling. I'm going to let it, I'm going to ask it where it's taking me and what it's teaching me. And the people, so many people mm -hmm. from artists to poets to friends that I know are the people who do just that. They're like, okay, yes. we're here. Giddy up. I think the word curious has been so key to me in the last few years, because I think, um, curiosity was not particularly encouraged for many, many, many people yeah. as as kids, um, we were, many of us taught to make a judgment about every feeling or every event. My daughter was just saying today as it snowed here in Nashville, um, and she was talking about the cold and how she said, I've just realized that I can actually experience this weather differently when, depending on the story I'm telling myself in my head about it. Like yeah. I've, she said, if I tell myself, it's bad. It's cold. I don't like cold. I'm sensitive to cold. I can't do cold. Then I feel it as very unpleasant. But if I just observe it and I'm like, yeah, it's cold. Exactly. Kind of refreshing, kind of, <laughs> you know, what else is it? And um, so yeah, I'm, we have that baseline story of, okay, everything has a use. Everything right. we use, it allows us to stay curious, to be like, all right, this is cold and I could cut myself off to what its potential use might be, or I could yes. remain curious and open and let it take me into a, an aha place of, wow, there's actually something about this I quite like. I've been feeling that about winter the last several years of just really that effort to say yes and oh, to fall in same. love. Yeah. I can't say I'm yet in love with it, but I can say that <laughs> we're becoming better friends. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm curious for you what might have been. It, you seem to me to 
do a great job, at least at this point of your life, of saying yes to and and really pivoting and rolling with things. I, I see it in the way you share on social media as well. And um, but I'm curious what the potential obstacles to your experience of aliveness could be or have been and how you've interacted with those things. Um, you know, back to, I think, what you were saying about curiosity. I think that we live in a culture that it's a culture of certainty. It's a, it's a culture that encourages hard lines, finitude and confidence and yes. daring and absolute and utter knowing, um, which can be so dangerous because I find that anytime I think and I'm certain and, in, and, in, and I'm very attached, and I think that that's the most key word, mm-hmm. when I am attached to knowing something is this way or that I want this thing or this must happen, yeah. that that is the thing that uh, gets me into situations where I contract, I become rigid, I am unable to flow with any mm-hmm. kind of yes because I have predetermined the set of steps and the exact course that they need to be. And right. if I'm attached to that, there is no way I can stay in that great river of life that is full of so many more twists and turns and surprises than anything yes. my mind could have conceived of from the get-go. Right. So I would say attachment is kind of that barrier to aliveness. And I also think hyper-individualism is Mm. a barrier because, uh, you know, so much of my life, I'm an Enneagram 4, right? Like, I don't know if your listenership is familiar, but like we want to- Oh, yes, I'm sure. (laughs) And we're the exception. And it's like, but no, no, let me just tell you how- I am the only one alive that actually experiences it this way. And there's truth to that, right? And, and the artist in me, of course, wants to say, but this is the way I taste it. I hear it. I perceive it, right? But with that hyper-individualism comes, the shadow side can be a sense of isolation and alienation. And we so often think that we're the only ones on this path of creating and we're doing it alone and it's (laughs) our way, damn it. (laughs) Right. But it's, it's, it's interesting how we as artists can um, even non fours can be like, you know, look at this tragic position I'm in that I'm so on the outside but also don't try to bring me inside. I'm outside. Yeah, I'm proud of being outside. That's where your identity is, right? Your <laughs> ego is, has constructed this identity about, yes, but the outside is where the artists live. And so right. you are also like attached to that outside. But every time I find, and I get stuck there all the time. This is not like yeah. I've got this one beat, right? But every time yeah. I get stuck there, something reminds me just like getting flicked in the head or like kind of like smacked on the back of the head. Like the universe will just be like, you it. <laughs> And I remember like, oh, this whole thing is a huge co-creation. Yes. I am not Man, I love that. this one individual asserting my will and dominance on this living experience, but I am inseparably interconnected with you, with my kids, with the planet, right? With actually every other person here and whatever the invisible things are that we cannot see, 
that's all mingling and coming together. And when I remember that, that one, it gives me a sense of belonging, right? Yes. Two, it just like cracks me up at my own stupidity. Like, thought, <laughs> why did I ever think I was so alone and so in charge? What, oh, like, what an idiot. Um, and it brings a lot of relief and that returns me yeah. to that state of aliveness. Mm, that was so beautifully said. And, and I, and it resonates here so much. And I, I think too, of the joy we deprive of ourselves of by staying, um, removing ourselves from potential collaborations of all kinds, just relationship. Um, and I see how much fun you have working with your partners in these different mm-hmm. forums. And I know how much fun I've had, but I, I, you know, I went to the Motown museum a few years ago with my friend, Nicole Witt, and I actually wept in there, not because I have such a passionate history with Motown, you know, but um, just it was a moment in my life where I realized how I had missed out on a lot of the aliveness that comes from uh, not taking, not being so precious about my ideas and my way of doing things and my way of being and just what happens when you're in a room. And I'd love for you to share about this when you're collaborating with uh, the people on the other side of your camera. You know, it can get messy musically when we write. You know, you don't write the thing you would have written on your own. Mm-hmm. You don't sing the song the way you would have sung it on your own. It's just like making a baby. Mm -hmm. this entirely other thing. And it doesn't drive you of the experience of also making things all and thinking your own individual thoughts. But how does that show up for you in the photography space where you're, because you get very kind of intimate, people are very vulnerable. Yeah, I think the medium of photography definitely lends to having made me more aware of like, oh, yeah, I'm not just doing this because it's a really it can be a really responsive and a reactive art, right? Like, yeah, I'm taking the photo, but the content of my art is somebody else is what they have brought to the frame. It's it's the light there that I have perceived, but it is also their light. It is the merging of those lights, or I would say merging of infinities. And that's a theme that I like to explore in everything I do from poetry to painting, right? Like I want to, I want to touch with what I make the place where some infinite presence mingles with another infinite presence. And there is this it almost sounds like I'm talking about sex. And so my mind went to a dirty place for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Merging Um, of infinities. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, the creation process, like if you you, you feel about it, but that is where the most fertile, like creative territory is. I'm sure you've heard this said that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. How true. And as I've grown as an artist, I, you know, it's funny to look back and trace your stages of creative growth. And um, I went through a huge stage that was hugely beneficial in my career of really getting in touch with what, how, what is my site? Back to that individualism. What is my perception? What is my story? Right. But right. when I approach photo subjects and I just 
approach it with my story so much of the time, then that is, I am blind to them, actually. Mm -hmm. I am mostly just projecting my story onto these people. Wow. But if I do the same thing, if I bring in my story and I bring in the awareness of my perspective and I regard the process as now my story, my sight, my perception is going to have a conversation with their story, their sight, their way of being and perception. And it's where those two things meet and converge that that third thing, if you think of a Venn diagram, then there's this third thing. And as a photographer, um, and all artists, right? Like we have this, um, we have this challenge of wanting to be original. And I right. think understanding that really nothing is original under the sun is like very yeah. difficult and a affront to our egos. But when you take one person's story and you merge it with someone else's story, and in that overlap, in the middle, that's where originality lives. That yes. is where something new is made because both sides of the conversation have been honored and not disregarded. And I love that. I love that so much because it really is exciting to me to talk about either art or life and see how they are one and the same. Mm-hmm. The things we learn about ourselves as we practice art we are learning how to be human as much as we're learning how to be an artist and we're learning how to be in relationship. You have a way of living very, um, with integrity is I guess the word I would say again, not knowing you in a personal space, but, um, when you share something personal and then you share something, uh, you know, your photography, and then you share, about business even, you know, naked marketing or any, it all feels very one, you know, very mm-hmm. cohesive. And that is inspiring to me. Is that a challenge or is it a challenge to resist compartmentalization? Yeah, there's, there's absolutely a part of me who sometimes longs for that compartmentalization, you know, like Mm -hmm. a painter who I love, her name's Agnes Martin. Um, And she has this great exhibit called my back against the world, which is like, you know, on one level, so problematic in so many ways, just this like privileged kind of white tower idea of the artist that you just, you put your head down and you make your work and you don't engage, you know, with anything that's going on in the world. And there were reasons that she did that. Like she didn't read a newspaper, I think for something like 20 years Mm -hmm. and her, you know, some of her reasons, she had a hard life. She had really, really big challenges with mental illness. And and so in some ways needed to draw a boundary around that to protect her own uh, ability to function, but at the same time, right, to be cut off, to be compartmentalized and cut off from, as artists, like there's this paradoxical challenge of we need to understand solitude and how to create from that singularity. But we also because as you said, art mirrors life and life mirrors art. We can't stop living to do it right. either. Um, so part of me sometimes longs to just, I want to lose myself in the creative process ecstasy. Yes. Um, but there's this foundational piece for me. Uh, and I'm sure to a fault of 
you know, the way we do one thing is the way we do everything, <laughs> right? Like the way yes. we spend our days is the way we live our lives. And I had this moment uh, traveling on the road, photographing families. I've done it for years, right? And most of my clients are other artists or other photographers. And I had such a self-convicting moment of realizing so much of uh, the presence I was giving, the witness I was giving, the story I was giving, uh, I was giving it to every other family but my own, you know? And I would come home very depleted and the person I would be at home looked so different from the public forward person and I, or public facing person. And I felt so much shame about that. I knew in my being, it was like, this physically feels just like the worst. Why would I, and we do this, it's very human, but like, why would I give the best of me to everyone except for who I love most? And so it really set me off on this path of um, asking myself before I do anything, what is my passion and what is my purpose? And, and not compartmentalizing it, but saying, how can my passion and my purpose, how can my passion and purpose as a photographer remain in relationship and be nurturing to my passion and purpose as a parent, to my passion and purpose yes. as a friend, to my passion and purpose as a business person. When I realized they're all in relationship, it's this ecosystem of being, mm -hmm. right? Then it, it was if you think of like our human bodies, it's, it's also this like ecosystem. We've got the nervous system. We've got like the limbic system. We've got all these systems working together. And at the center of every system needs to be a heart. Right. And for me, that heart is what holds, that's where your passion and your purpose are. And if I am constantly checking in and aligning with what that is for me, I hope, I don't think it comes across to everyone as cohesive, but I hope that that is a glue that unifies. I think back to the start of our conversation where we talked about your bio line saying I'm in the love business, which seems to me a very, you know, if that umbrella and your parenting and your all of these different forms of work fall under that one umbrella. I mean, it's that's a big broad one, but um, that's if that's your heartbeat, that makes all the sense in the world. You know. And, you know, I want to say is that, like, there was also another moment before the moment I just described, which was just as necessary when mm -hmm. I was married and, um, you know, living a story that felt so far, it felt like so much like a self-betrayal. It wasn't mm -hmm. the story that I had wanted for myself, but it was the story I felt my, I had tumbled into for myself without using my own will and volition to not end up there, mm -hmm. you know? And so there was also a moment which was equally necessary where I had to say no to, yeah. and I kind of exploded my current mm -hmm. life and my home life. But the unifying thing there, like when I say I'm in the love business, like getting into the love business did not take me to the romantic places I thought it was going to take. <laughs> Right? Like when you, if, if we're going to proclaim and really say, I'm dedicating myself to love. Oh, you find out eventually that it takes you on a wild roller coaster ride to where true love lives, which isn't this very like limited idea of love that we have, that it should yeah. all be about us and what we want and our passion. Although 
Although starting with the foundation of claiming who that self is and that yes is, like we have to claim ourselves in that love sort of to go out and put it into all of the other pieces of our lives. So the point is at two different places in my life, I've made two completely opposite decisions, mm. both in the pursuit of true love. Both were necessary. I think that speaks so much again to both and art because so many conversations, as you know, with new artists, or am I making it for other people or am I making it for me? Is one of those right and one of those is wrong? Yeah. But it's both. It's both. And it's both <laughs> at the same time. And I think about you're a musician. I mean, like if I could pick the thing that I had talent for, it would definitely be music, right? Mm. Like I sang in choir and I loved choir, but you know, the there's a, I can carry a tune, but there's like the gifted, gifted musical people. And then there's just like the people who can like fall in and do it, but maybe aren't as outstanding of a talent. But in a choir, you know, like when you're singing with other voices, you're harmonizing and you're blending and you have to be able to listen to other voices in order to do that. But you also, and before you can blend and harmonize, right, you have to gain familiarity with your voice and the right. texture and you have to know how to get loud and how to get quiet. And you have to learn and know those things about yourself in order to add it to the choir, right? To add it to the choir of like, yes. where do I harmonize? Where do I fit in? Do I go high? Do I go low? And I think that's a really good analogy for what we're talking about, right? That intimacy of self-knowledge and one's own voice and one's own heart is absolutely necessary to blend it harmoniously in a way that serves both self and other. Yeah. Oh man, I could run with that metaphor. because <laughs> being Having spent a lot of time not knowing my own voice, even though I was in music, you know, <laughs> not knowing my, <laughs> not knowing my own voice on the metaphorical side of things and the, and what that cost me, but also what it deprives the, the, the whole mm -hmm. of. How much does suffering have to do with our capacity to experience aliveness? Does it require suffering, I guess? Well, I think I want to first make a distinction between suffering and pain, because I think that pain is absolutely necessary and it's coming for all of us, whether you try to run from it or not. Mm -hmm. But I think suffering is what happens when we decide not to move beyond the pain or we decide not to use what we have found in the pain and alchemize the pain and we instead stay there and therefore we suffer. Yeah. Because sort of like what we were talking about with emotions that each one has something to give us and to feed us and offer us. And, and when we have found that thing that it has for us, we must be willing to alchemize and move the, the nurture that we've been given from that pain or that experience and um, present it. In, I'm, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be Pollyanna and just say, and then present it in a positive, great way, because there are absolutely places where it is vital, particularly in a toxically positive culture to, to hold up pain and say, look, no, look, stay with this a bit longer. Don't be in such a rush. 
but there is this point of crossing through, right? Where I have found myself at times, I have found people I love at times where we want to stay stuck because the unknownness of what's on the other side, which could be something joyful, but like that's not known and this is familiar. Yes. That is too immense for us. And I think that because of that, we stay in suffering. I hear a Buddhist teacher saying it, it's the second arrow. Have you heard that? Yeah, yeah. I love that. The, the, the first arrow, I guess, would be the pain. Yes. And the second arrow would be the suffering. And the stories we tell ourselves about pain can cause suffering. Interesting. I felt like I knew this, conver- this topic was going to come up in our conversation. So I saved this poem just so I could bring it up for just now. Because yeah, as the Enneagram 4, like... We're the ones who are like, we're into pain. We like to feel our feelings and we can wallow like little, just like sad pieces of shit. And I am mm. a sad piece of shit. And I love to be in my fields and my favorite, you know, some of my favorite poets, Rilke, right? Like mm-hmm. embrace this, like nothing is wrong. No feeling is wrong. Beauty yeah. and fear, feel all of it. And um, Naomi Shahab Nye, right? Like she has this great poem. I'm sure you've heard it. But I think it speaks to this and just the very first part, and maybe you can put the whole poem in for your readers somewhere, but Mm -hmm. she says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. It really has mm. been true for me that the true love I feel that I'm able to give, the real witness, the actual wisdom, all of that can be traced to moments and experiences of deep pain. Mm-hmm. That is where my deepest lessons have been. Thank you so much for taking time. I like to ask this one last question to close. And I probably asked you on the summit. I can't remember. Um, what is something that you really love about being you? Um, what do I love about being me? Uh, <laughs> my ability to be impressed. Uh, one thing I'm proud of is my capacity for wonder and that it is not diminished. And that means that I can see the sunrise or the sunset a million times and never cease to have that profound, tingly, weeping experience. And I feel like that has been the greatest gift to, to get to live that. I like that. I like that too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yan. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. Good work. And thank you so much for listening, following, and leaving a kind review. To connect with me further, you can email me and follow me on Instagram, Krista Wells Music. Till next time.